listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Amen. Well, good morning. As you have a seat, let me introduce myself. My name is Clint. If you are new um, in our church, maybe the last five weeks or so, um, this is, um, my name's Clint. I'm one of the guys on staff. You hadn't, hadn't seen me. Uh, it's funny when you don't intend to make a joke. It's gonna be a good day if you guys are already laughing. Um, uh, one thing I wanna mention um, before we turn in the scripture to what God would have for us today is a, a couple of weeks ago, the first of the year, we had a, a couple, a, a ch- family really, a church members um, up here and we commissioned them to send them as missionaries, uh, the D family, and we commissioned them and prayed for them and you, know, got, you guys got to see them and we were sending them, but they had some delays with travel and closed countries and that kind of thing. Well, um, everything fell in place and they're actually going to the field on Tuesday. Um, and so they're here and uh, because of the sensitivity of the place they're going, we can't show their face or anything like that, but the D family's here. Just wanna make you aware of that as our, we are sending our people. We're, when we say go and be the church, in very real ways, that's for us as we go to our workplaces in our neighborhood and whatever that might be, but for them, it, it means something completely different, which is awesome, and we get to be a part of that and just want you to be aware of that. Be praying for them. Uh, we are gonna have a time of prayer for them after the gathering if you wanna um, say hello, high five. Fist bump, whatever, okay? Just wanna make you aware of that. Matthew chapter five, if you have a Bible, you turn with me to Matthew chapter five. Um, I think this is week 12 of our series through the gospel of Matthew. We started back at the end of last year. And if you're thinking, wait, 12 weeks, we're not done with chapter five yet. And I think there's 28 in Matthew, right? How long are we gonna be in this book? If you have those questions swirling around your head, the answer to that is only God knows, okay? Only God knows, For the past few weeks, we have been in a section of the book of Matthew, uh, chapter five, six, and seven. And I wanna start by reading the passage that we're gonna be in today. uh, Because the most important thing we do when we gather is to have the word of God read. Uh, That we believe the primary way that the God of the universe speaks to us, his people, is in and through the pages of scripture. So I'm gonna read this for us and then we'll spend some time talking about it. So Matthew five, starting in verse 38, Jesus says to us, you have heard it said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. uh, But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, then go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. I wanna start our time by focusing just for a minute. Um, We're gonna walk through this entire text, but I wanna start with something Jesus says in verse 45, because I think uh, it's easy to miss what he says here, and it's important to understand what he says in verse 45, um, to understand this passage and really the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount, right? So in verse 43, he says, you've heard it said. We'll talk about the significance of that statement later. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then verse 45, he says, so that, live this way, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Um, 
again, understanding this is critical to understanding what Jesus means here. Jesus says to his followers, I want you to love your enemies. I want you to live a certain way. In this case, love your enemies so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. And this sounds like Jesus is saying, love your enemy so that God will love you. That's what it sounds like. But that can't be what this means for a couple of reasons. One, it's not consistent with Jesus's other teaching. Two, that's not the gospel, right? The word gospel means what? It means good news. And the good news of the gospel is that we are loved by the God of the universe, not because of what we do, but because of who Christ is and what he has accomplished for us. So this cannot mean love your enemy so God will love you and you will become children uh, of God, right? The idea here is it's like this. It's like in this room right now. It's when you can see a child and in their appearance, you can see who they belong to, right? That's what's happening. So uh, my wife and I have... Three, three kids, two boys. The oldest one, blonde hair, blue eyes, looks like his mom. It's probably good for him, right? The middle one, brown hair, brown eyes, looks like me. Again, the jury's still out on that. Maybe he'll get more of her as it shakes out, right? But a couple weeks ago, uh, Mary Elizabeth was having coffee with a friend and for whatever reason, Brooks was with her. And at some point in the conversation, because he was there, she just like came out and said, I cannot get over how much he looks like Clint, okay? And again, yeah, maybe he'll have a good personality or something, right? But uh, I'm kidding. He's a handsome little guy, okay? Um, I mentioned that to make the point that they're both my boys, both of them. The fact that one looks more like me doesn't make him any more my son, right? But the one that looks like me, what that is for him, it's evidence that he is my son. And the point that Jesus is making is not, if you don't love your enemies, then you don't belong to God. Again, it's not, he doesn't love us because of what we do. What he's saying is that living the way he says we should live, and in particular, loving our enemies is evidence that God is your father. That's what he's saying. This is what the Sermon on the Mount is about. If you wanna synthesize what these three chapters are saying, it's this is what it looks like to live as sons and daughters of God. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. And in this section specifically that we're gonna finish today, Jesus gives six examples of what this type of life looks like. Bill covered the first four of those examples last week. We're gonna hit the last two today, the ones we just read. But to understand what's happening, we need to see something that Jesus says right before these six examples. So look at uh, chapter five, verse 20. It'll be on the screen. He says, for I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, then you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, we have to understand this to see this passage. And there's two primary ways to misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. The first one is like what we just talked about. It sounds like Jesus is saying in order to be loved by God, then we need to be better than the scribes and the Pharisees. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, those were the professional religious people Think of the godliest person you know. Jesus just said that you gotta be godlier than them in order to get into the kingdom of heaven. That's what it sounds like he's saying, but we know that's not true because we know it's not up to us to earn the love of God. And he says something just a couple verses earlier in verse 17, we talked about a couple weeks ago. He says um, that I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, I came to fulfill them. Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of, of the Old Testament law, meaning the way that you get in, the way that you establish a relationship with God is not, what you do is what I have done for you. So that's the first way to misunderstand what this verse means. The other way, though, is the, the opposite side of this. It's to hear that and think the only thing that he means, the, the only reason he says that is to show us how bad we are and show us how much we need a savior. That's not what's happening. 
right? The rest of the sermon is about Jesus describing a life of righteousness and the crazy thing is he actually thinks that that type of life of righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees is available to us in Christ. It's not just look how bad you are, how much you need Jesus. It's that plus follow me down a path where you are being continually changed to the point where you reflect the holiness of God the Father. That's the exceeding life of righteousness that Jesus is talking about. He invites his followers into a life that is paved with grace and paved with love, but that path of receiving God's grace and receiving God's love should be forming in us deep righteousness, should be forming in us change, right? Um, This is what Jesus is talking about in verse 48. I read it there. You can look in your Bible. You therefore, he says, must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So perfection, perfect has a lot of baggage for us in the English language. So if Jesus is saying, hey, God's perfect, never makes a mistake, so neither should you, who can live up to that? No one. That's not what he's saying. Almost every other place in the New Testament, this word perfect here in the original language is translated mature, right? Almost every other place is translated mature or fullness. It's the idea Paul says in the book of Colossians, he says, in order that he may present you holy and blameless before him, that we might present people mature in Christ. So it's this idea of being full, lacking nothing, having a life that's whole, that's content, that's satisfied. That's what he's talking about. So be whole and complete like your heavenly father is complete, right? So these two verses, verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, and verse 48, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect or whole. That is the bookend of the section that we've been looking at the past two weeks, the section that we're gonna finish today. And what Jesus is describing are people who have a substance to their lives. People who have more to their righteousness than what can be seen on the surface, more inside than is outside. And so Jesus gives us six examples of what this life looks like in chapter five. And these six things are not all that Jesus cares about, That's not all he could say. It's just, he's painting a picture for us. This is what it looks like to live as sons and daughters of God. And he says things like this in verse 21. He says, you've heard it said of those of old that you shall not murder, but I say, essentially, he says, let's talk about the anger that's in your heart. Again, it's inside out. Jesus cares about what's below the surface and not just the way that you can modify your behavior to look like you're someone you're not. Then again, in verse 27, he says, you've heard it said you shouldn't commit adultery, but I say to you, let's talk about the lust that's in your heart. This is what he means when he talks about a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees because it goes deeper. And again, the point isn't just to show us how bad we are or how much we need a savior, right? The point is that what ultimately God wants for his children is not just that we would be able to white knuckle our sin so that we don't murder someone or commit adultery. That's not the life that Jesus is inviting us into. What he wants is that we would not be ruled by our anger. It's an inside out transformation, that we wouldn't be ruled by our lust or ruled as we'll see today by the hate that's in our heart. And we actually would be set free from being ruled by our sin. And as Jesus ends this section in chapter five, he gives us a way to know if it's working. Gives us a diagnostic test, right? Which is great for us because we need to go, well, how, long, how am I doing? We're all a work in progress. How are we doing? How do I know if I am walking in a life like Jesus would say is sons and daughters of God? And I'm gonna give you, it's incredibly profound. I'm gonna put it on the screen. You ask yourself this question. is: are you a person of love? 
I can sense the disappointment. You're like, I was hoping for something way better than that. You said it was profound. Um, But that's how you know. Are you a person of love? And that's not surprising, is it? Anyone come in here surprised to hear that Christians should love God and love people? Like even if, if you don't have a background in church, you don't even know what you think about Jesus, but you're just here because your neighbor's been inviting you and you're trying to get him off your back. Like you're not surprised to hear me say that Christians should love God and love people. It doesn't raise any eyebrows. In fact, you, you'd probably be surprised if it were something less than that. If I said, hey, here's how you know if you're a Christian or a son of God and you're living your life as a daughter of the king is if you love God and just deal with the people around you. Right, that would, that would probably fall short. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and tolerate those difficult people that you live around, right? That would, that would be different for us. By the way, don't murder them, right? That, that, would, that falls short of, of what we would expect. We know we should love people, but almost every time that Jesus talks to his followers about the love that we should have for people is he wants to talk about the love that we don't offer people. Almost every single time, he wants to talk, he wants to confront our low standards of love, right? Um, Jesus knows that our tendency when it comes to loving people is to only love the people who we think deserve it from us. That's what we think, right? So when we hear Christians should love God and love people, we go, yeah. But what we're thinking is I love my family, I love the people who are like me, I love the people who I like. And everyone else I just ignore or tolerate or even hate. And, and the conversation that Jesus is, wants to have with us this morning is, what it looks like to live as sons and daughters of God is you ask yourself this question, are you a person of love? And, and there's two categories, right? He doesn't wanna talk primarily about the love that we give. Two categories today in this text. He wants to talk about the love that we don't give to people who have hurt us and love that we don't give to people who are not like us. And when I prayed earlier about how this is a difficult passage, it is. All right, if you thought this conversation about anger and lust in your heart was hard, that was the this warm-up stretch, the pregame stretching to what we're about to step into. This is challenging stuff, and we'll dig into it and see what Jesus says. He wants to talk about the love we don't give to people who've hurt us and the love that we don't give to people who are not like us. Verse 38, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So just like the other examples before this, Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And he's not uh, contradicting the law there or, or even reestablishing a new law. He's redefining the intent, the original intent of the law that God gave. And he's clarifying for his followers how they have drifted from that original intent, right? So he says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And this is a reference to a a set of laws in a handful of places in the Old Testament. You know that part of your Bible where the pages are all crisp? Because you don't ever look at it, right? So Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19, Exodus 21, there were these laws that existed to apply a legal principle called equal retribution. And if you're like, what does that mean? I don't know, but here, let me explain it to you this way. Basically, the idea is whatever harm is done to you, then you can do equal harm to them. That's what the law, that's the intent of the, of the law originally. Um, and originally the intent wasn't to protect victims, it was to limit chaos and to prevent this overreaction to wrongs committed against the people of God. So here's an example that's incredibly applicable for us. In Exodus 21 it says that if you're digging a hole and it becomes a pit 
and then your neighbor's donkey falls into it and he dies, then you're required by law to give him a new donkey. Again, incredibly applicable, right? When you're digging a hole and then your neighbor's dog falls in there and then you just have to replace their dog. That's what the word of God says, okay? Um, it actually does say that, but the, the law of an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth existed there to not protect the victim, but to keep from an overreaction, to keep from something like this. Hey, that's my favorite donkey. And so, you know what? You owe me three instead of one to keep from us overreacting uh, when we have wrong committed against us. And again, the point was to prevent this overreaction. And the question we need to ask is, why would we need a law like this in the first place? I think the answer is because the human heart hasn't changed. And when we're wronged, we don't wanna just get people back. We wanna get them back plus tum, right? So this is completely hypothetical because I don't know what kind of fights they were getting into where they were losing teeth and eyes. Uh, maybe I'm just soft, I don't know. But hypothetically, if you and I were to get in a fight and you punch me in the face and it knocks out one of my teeth, this is hypothetical, it's not really happening, but the unsanctified version of me, I can promise you, wouldn't just wanna take one of your teeth with one punch. I want a tooth and an eye. That's how the human heart responds when we're wrong. We wanna get back what was taken from us plus some, and the law existed to prevent that from happening, right? And this is actually even more complex than that because you punch, right, right now, if you punch me in the face, I'm, hopefully I wouldn't punch you back because the spirit of God's in me and I would just go, hey, what the heck? You know, turn the other cheek and walk away. But I can promise you this, hypothetically, if a grown man walked up to me, to me and not punched me, but he punched my wife in the mouth, or he punched my two-year-old daughter in the face. Hypothetically, no one would ever do this, right? Well, yeah, okay. Um, but here's the, here's the thing with that. If that happened, I'm going to feel anger and wrath. And I'm not, I don't care about your teeth at that point. I'm gonna burn your house down with you inside of it. <laughs> That's what the law existed to prevent, right? This is how the human heart responds when it's wronged. The intent of the law was to prevent this overreaction, but what it became was if you do this to me, then I have the right to do that back to you, right? It became a, a right to ex exact punishment. And Jesus gives four examples to apply this to his followers' lives. And when Jesus says these four examples, uh, the Jewish people were under uh, an incredibly difficult oppression from Rome occupation from Rome, right? They, they weren't in charge of their lives. They weren't in charge of their land, Rome was. That's what's happening here. And every one of these examples that Jesus gives were real examples of injury and difficult things that were happening in the life of God's people. So when he says in verse 41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, then go with him too. That's not like somebody went behind your back and signed you up for a charity race that you didn't know about, okay? That would be bad. <laughs> this is worse. This is a Roman officer who had the legal right to force you to drop whatever you were doing because they didn't want to carry their stuff anymore and they could force you to go up to one mile and carry their stuff. So think about how inconvenient that would be. You're on your way, you're doing your life, you're working, whatever, stressed out, trying to get the kids in the car, get going, whatever, and this guy stops and says, nah, quit doing that, I need you to come with me, carry this stuff. You're like, I don't want to, it don't matter. It's like... Um, like modern day uh, example would be like ride sharing, you know, like Uber or something like that, except for they don't pay you and if you don't take them, you go to jail. So just like Uber, right? Um, the examples that he uses were very real injustices that the people of God were facing in their lives. 
And he uses illustrations to turn their attention to the parts of their life that were the most painful and the most unfair. Right, the place in your life where you usually don't like to go. So when someone asks you how you're doing, and you just say fine, and you move on, and you go, if I was honest and I would talk about this, that's what he's trying to turn their attention to. The, the, the way that they have been wronged. Look again, verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So a couple things we need to understand what Jesus is saying here. The first thing is this slaps you on the right cheek. This isn't talking primarily about an act of physical violence. So the goal here wasn't to hurt them physically, it was to insult them publicly. So if you were, most people in that culture were right-handed, just like they are in ours. And so if you were to hit somebody, slap them on the right face, you would do it with the backhand. So it's an act of public shaming, a public you know, dishonoring. Uh, and the primary goal, again, wasn't to injure them, it was to dishonor them. I think this is where the phrase comes from, like what a slap in the face. You're not saying, man, they really slapped me. You know, you're talking about how you were insulted, how they wounded you, um, how they dishonored you. Um, and so that's the first thing we need to see here. That's what this is happening. Not an act of violence primarily, although they were talking about actually hitting someone. We're talking about how they insulted you. The second thing is when Jesus says, do not resist the one who is evil. We need to understand something about this word resist. It means to oppose or to set yourself against. But the way Jesus means it here is not so much when he says don't resist the one who is evil, he's not saying don't stop them from doing what they're doing to you. What he's talking about, he's saying don't seek revenge for what they did. That's the idea. And, and I wanted to clarify that because what this cannot mean for us, for Christians, is that we're never supposed to protect ourselves. It can't mean that. It can't mean we're not supposed to stop physical harm from happening to ourselves or from other people or that we're supposed to let people just run over us. That's not what turn the other cheek means. And I'll explain that here in a second. At one point in the Bible, we'll be see Jesus sees some people taking advantage of the poor and he grabs a whip and he literally whips these guys out of the temple, okay? This can't mean that we, when Christians just turn the other cheek when evil's happening, just pretend like it's not there. That's not what he's saying. Another point in the Bible, Jesus confronts a group of religious leaders who are stoning a woman. He stops it. Uh, Luke 22, one of my favorite passages, Jesus says to his disciples, okay, it's time. If you don't have a sword, you need to get a sword. And he says, if you don't have one, then you sell your cloak, which was your most valuable item of clothing, and you get one, which I think is a pretty strong argument for concealed carry. And I know that some of you might disagree, and that's okay, all right? What this is not saying is that we should respond to evil passively as God's children. What it's saying is that we should respond to evil differently as God's children. So in these examples he gives, not resisting the evil person, when, when you're slapped, when you're insulted, not resisting means, not that you don't stop them, it means that you don't seek revenge. That you don't slap back or insult back to get revenge on them. That you don't react in the same way that they acted towards you. That's what not slapping back means. And if we could just be honest, there is an incredible tension for me, for Christians in this conversation to apply a verse like this, okay? Because when you consider what this verse might mean for you or what Jesus might have for you in this, it gets really complicated. Because again, what Jesus is talking about are the places in your life where you've been wronged. The people who have sinned against you, the relationships, the uh, painful relationships and the injustices 
that we have endured in our life, specifically in these examples where you have little ability to keep that from happening. That's what Jesus is talking about, right? So there is a tension here for the Christian to respond to evil and injustice in the world. And it's easy to hear what Jesus says, turn the other cheek or go the extra mile and think, man, there is no way. It's easy to hear that and go, there's no way, right? And I get it. That is the natural response. This is incredibly complex and we need wisdom. And I need to say this, this doesn't mean that what is most loving sometimes in certain toxic relationships, it doesn't mean, turning the cheek doesn't mean that what's most loving in those situations is not healthy boundaries. It's always most loving to be honest with people about how they've wronged us, about how they've wounded and how they've hurt us. That is, that is true, okay? So there's a tension here and we need to hold both of those in, in our hands as we look at this and seek to apply it to our lives. Um, what this has to mean for us is that we shouldn't always jump to explain away these verses out of a sense of self-protection. Because what is clear in this text is the deeper righteousness that, in G- that Jesus is inviting us into as children of God as he talks about the love that we don't give to people. What's clear in this text is that Jesus wants the desire for revenge that exists in our heart toward the people who hurt us, he wants to replace that with love. That's what's happening in this passage. He invites us to surrender our justice to the justice of God so that love can replace a, a desire for revenge. So the law says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And the intent of this law was to limit chaos, to prevent an overreaction, right? But what it had become, as we said, was a right to exact punishment, to take matters into our own hands, to get revenge for ourselves, to take it back out on them plus some. And what Jesus is saying, what is even better than the intent of the law is, is this. It's having a heart that's free from being ruled by that type of hatred. That's his point, that the desire for revenge will be replaced with love, having a heart that is actually free from being ruled by that kind of desire for revenge. We'll talk about that more in a minute, but if you walk around aware of the way that people have hurt you, that is a, a pretty primary motivator in the way that you live your life, the things you do, the things you don't do. And Jesus is saying, what's better than having the right to exact punishment is not being ruled by that type of desire in your heart. And again, the natural reaction, and when we, especially when you think about like the, the horrific and atrociously evil things that happen to people and don't just happen are done to people in our world, when you try to apply a verse like this, the natural reaction is to go, that's not fair. What about the wrong? What about justice? Well, the Apostle Paul actually gives us commentary on this passage in Romans 12. It'll be on the screen. I want you to hear what he says about this. He says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And then he says this, beloved, that's loved by God, belonging to him as a child, not because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done. He says, beloved, if that's you, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So don't take revenge in your own hands. And then he says this in verse 20. And on top of that, to the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, you feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So the answer to the question, how could we possibly love when we've been wronged? 
The Apostle Paul says, because God is just. Because God is just. So not, it doesn't matter how bad you've been hurt, love anyways. That's not what's happening here. It's going, it matters so much, God cares. And God cares so much that he is the one who keeps track of it. And if he's the one who keeps track, then we don't have to. Because he's better at it than us. Right, we, we don't love talking about uh, God of wrath, God's justice, because God is love and we like that. And so it's hard in our minds to how the two come together. How is God both wrath and love? But a loving God cannot truly be loving in a broken world without also being a God of wrath. Let me show you it this way. So back to the illustration. If a grown man walks up, punches my daughter in the mouth, I will feel anger. I would feel wrath. And here's the thing. The presence of that anger is not sin. The presence of what I do with it might be sin. And I'm probably gonna need you to bail me out, right? But the presence of that anger is not sin. Because what if someone punched my daughter in the face and I felt absolutely nothing? Just apathetic to the whole thing. Would you say, man, what an amazing dad? Absolutely not, right? The reason why I would feel that anger is simply because I love her. And if I didn't feel anger, it's evidence that I didn't love her. So the point is that since God is love and he has set his love on a broken world, it has to be true that God's wrath is evidence of his love being present, not absent. The two things work together. So losing this reality that God is both love and just is losing the reality that that's who he is. It makes understanding a passage like this incredibly problematic because if you don't have that, God love and just, especially when you interpret passages like this through the lens, like I said, of some of the horrific things that happen to people because people do them in, intentionally without a God who keeps count, this passage is cruel. Without a God who keeps a record of wrongs, all we're left with is one of two things, either being a doormat to people, allowing them to run over us, and then living under the crushing weight of how we've been wounded, or taking vengeance into our own hands and being ruled by our hatred for the people who hurt us. That's all you have. Without God being love and just, this passage is cruel. Church, every single sin, every single sin is met with the justice of God. Either the justice of God with Christ on the cross or the justice of God poured out on us at the return of Christ. It's either poured out on him in full at the cross or on us in full at the return of Christ. Every single sin is met with the justice of God. And what this means for us is if God keeps record of wrong, we don't have to because God cares. And I know that's a process, it takes work, our deep wounds, the deep wounds that we have, they need to be healed so that we can learn to trust God not to take revenge into our own hands. But here's the point. The two life, the pictures of life that I told you, apart from God being love and justice, embracing that, that our Father loves us that way, the two, those two pictures of life, there's no freedom there. There's no freedom in, in harboring bitterness for self-protection, and there's no freedom and living, being ruled by the way that we hate people who've hurt us. And oftentimes what's exposed in us when we have this conversation, particularly around where we've been hurt, is what we want for ourselves is Christ on the cross. What we want for other people who've hurt us is the return of Christ. The judgment poured out on them. And Jesus is saying, and I know this is hard, especially if you're walking through a season right now, and I'm not saying that 
or Jesus isn't saying turn the other cheek, meaning he is condoning or embracing what's being done to you. Again, that's sin. It will be paid for because God is just. But what God is saying, what Jesus is saying to us when he says turn the other cheek is that his grace is working to root out the seeds of bitterness in our lives and replace it with the fruit of the spirit, which is love. The desire for revenge in our lives being replaced with the love of God. And so we love those who have wronged us, not because they deserve it from us, but because we have a father who loves us and we don't deserve it. Second category and I'll do this one quickly, uh, quickly, I promise, is the love that we don't give to people who aren't like us. I want you to see this in verse 43. Jesus says, again, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Again, he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, and he, he states the cultural understanding of the law of God. So love your neighbor. That part was in the Old Testament, but the hate your enemy part, that's not anywhere in the Old Testament. What happened, again, because Jesus knows our tendency, the human heart, is to, to uh, he wants to confront our shallow uh, understanding of love. And that's what they had done. In their mind, they're going, there's no possible way God wants us to love everyone, so love your neighbor and hate your enemy. They added that part in. Jesus knows the human heart, we tend to only give love to the people who deserve it from us, right? This is what's happening in their culture. That's why they added the part, hate your enemy. So it's like if you're familiar with Luke chapter 10, the story of the Good Samaritan, this guy comes up to Jesus and he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus goes, what do you think? And he says, well, the law says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, yeah, go do that. And then what's the guy say? He says, "Um, yeah, but who's my neighbor? His question is, but who do I have to love? Who deserves my love, right? Jesus' answer to that question is even your enemy. His answer to that question, who is my neighbor, is even your enemy. Even the people who don't look like you, act like you, think like you, vote like you, believe what you believe, even your enemy. Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Again, in verse 45, his argument is, live this way so that you might be sons of your father who is in heaven. Again, this is not how we earn God's love. Living this way is evidence that God is our father, that we have received his fatherly love, right? And so let me just say this. God does not choose you and me because he looked at us and thought, you know, you're a little rough around the edges, but you got good bones. There's some good potential there with you. God doesn't look at us and think, man, I think I really could do a lot in you. God looked at every single one of us And he thought, you deserve to go to hell. Because of our sin, because of the way that we have acted not in accord with the way he says, he thought every single one of us, but but God, Ephesians says, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive in Christ. He brought us from death into life. You deserve to go to hell, but I choose you anyways. I love you and I will transform you from a child of wrath to a child of God. This is the doctrine of adoption. This is why we have this. People aren't by default children of God. By default, we are made in the image of God. In order to become children of God, we have to be adopted by the Father, not because of what we do, but because of who he is and what he's done. We don't deserve it, right? Look at verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same, right? And that's, 
That's what he's saying is the Gentiles, even the people who don't know God and have not received this staggering, unnatural, otherworldly love from the God of the universe, even they love the people who are like them. And so if you have received God's love, how has it changed you? That's what he's saying. Romans 5 verse 8 says, but God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, other verses, other translations say, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. The true distinctive, the mark of the son of God, the daughter of God, the child of God, the Christian, the mark of the Christian is loving our enemies because we have a God who loves us when we don't deserve it. And if we're supposed to love our enemies, this means that love must not be, first and foremost, a feeling. It has to be an action. Because I don't care how much you try, you can't make yourself feel something. Just love them, you know? You can't do it. We have, our motivation for this, if we're gonna actually do this, not just hear a sermon and then go about our way and go, man, that's kind of hard, let's move on. If we wanna listen to the words of Jesus and allow his voice to be the authoritative voice in our lives and actually implement it in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit, then we need to define love based on what God says, not on what we think it is. And we don't have time for this, but if you've ever been to a wedding, you've heard 1 Corinthians 13, where God gives us his definition for love. And what's he say? Love is patient. Patience isn't a feeling towards someone, it's an action toward them when they've done something that annoys you or some way they've wronged you. Be patient. Love is kind. It's extending kindness to people, especially when they haven't deserved it. It says love doesn't boast. It isn't arrogant, which means it's not about you and what you th- who you think deserves your love. It's about them even when they don't deserve it. All right, here's a question that you probably don't want me to ask you. Who is your enemy? Who are the people that Jesus is saying that you should love, but you don't want to? Who is your enemy? I know this is Savannah and, and some of you right now I even had somebody come up and say, man, that's exactly what I was thinking. We go, hey, I don't have any enemies. I don't have any enemies. Okay, this is the way we say it. I just don't care for them that much. So who are the people that you don't, just don't care for that much? And again, I don't wanna like, I make jokes. I don't wanna trivialize what Jesus is saying here is that we would extend radical, generous love to people who've hurt us or who see the world completely different than us. And the only way that's possible is by the power of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is saying the pathway to freedom and the pathway to the life that we want is to love those people. He says, and pray for them. I don't have time for this, but he says, pray for them, not about them. You know the difference? Here's how I wanna close. Jesus, he brought us in here today to have this conversation about the love that we don't give to people who've hurt us and the love that we don't give to people who aren't like us or different than us. But if, if you actually wanted to have that conversation with you, right, the incarnate Jesus shows back up and he wants to, where do you think he would wanna start? Do you think he would start with that list of enemies that exists in your head, the people you don't care that much for? the list of people in your life who have hurt you or hurt someone that you love and you can't even possibly begin to think about what it would be to love them. I don't think he would wanna start there. I know he cares about that. I know he wants to set you free from the past wounds, the hold they have in your life, 
He doesn't want you to be ruled by that desire uh, for revenge. I don't think that's where he would start. I think he would start here by reminding you first that he has not withheld his love from you. Because Jesus knows that we cannot extend what we have not first received. He would start by reminding us that he has not withheld a single bit of his love for us. And it goes even better. Ephesians says that he lavishes that love on us. Jesus knows we can't offer what we haven't received. And love with God doesn't start with the love that we give to others. It starts with the love that we receive in Christ from him. We receive in Christ from him. And let me just say this. If you hear anything I said today, I want you to hear this. Jesus loves the real you. I can barely say it. He loves the real you, not the pretend made up version of you that is, doesn't even exist, but that's what everyone else thinks you are, you know? He doesn't love that version of you because that version isn't real. He loves the real you. And you know what's true about the real you? You have wronged him time and time again. You know what else is true about the real you and me? We are not like him. And Jesus models for us this turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, enemy life for us. Almost every illustration he gives in Matthew 5 happens in the story of his crucifixion. John 18, Jesus is testifying wrongly, put on trial before the high priest. And he's kind of, the high priest asks him a question, he's answering the Roman guard, it says in John 18, slaps him across the face. Jesus says, turn the other cheek, and he does. Then he says, if anyone takes your tunic, you give him your coat, and if anyone forces you to walk a mile, you walk another with him. And in Matthew 27, after Jesus is beaten and spit on and mocked, they strip him of his clothes and they force him to carry his cross until his body literally collapses and then they execute this law to say, here, here's another man. Now you go and carry the cross for it. Jesus models for us this turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, enemy loving life for us. And the question that I need you to answer is why? Why would he do it? I mean, honestly, Hebrews says he's the one that upholds the universe by the word of his power. That all things, Colossians says, were created by him, for him, through him. They were made, right? Which means that Jesus planted the tree that was made into a cross that he hung on. And Jesus planted the Roman soldier in, in, and formed him in his mother's womb before he was born, who would eventually slap him in John 18. Why would he do it? the one with all authority, he could do whatever he wanted, call down, he says, legions of angels to pull him down off the cross. Why would he do it? Well, Peter tells us, 1 Peter 2, I want you to hear this. For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you. He leaves us an example so that you might follow in his steps. It says he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly because God is just, because he loves us. He himself, verse 24, bore, him, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus models for us a life of lavishing love on those who have wounded you and are not like you. 
So Luke chapter 10, back to that conversation, they go back and forth and the guy says, yeah, but who is my neighbor? When Jesus says, go love God, go love your neighbor. Well, who is he? Surely you're not talking about this guy or who are the people that I'm supposed to love? Who is my neighbor? Jesus essentially says, even your enemy. And then in verse 37, he says this. He says, now you go and do likewise. Church, what would happen if we obeyed those words? If we were so convinced of God's love for us, so confident in his justice that we could actually love the people around us? even those who don't deserve it from us. That's what it means to be the church. Every Sunday when we say, go and be the church, that's what we're talking about. Go live distinctly as sons and daughters of God. So loved by God, 1 Corinthians says, that we're convinced of God's love, we're compelled by that to go and share it with the people around us. Go be the church means go with the understanding that the God of the universe loves the real you. And by his wounds, you are healed. So you can extend love to the people around you, even those who've wronged you, even those who we would consider our enemy. That's what it means to be the church. Let me pray for us. Then we'll remember God's love for us by worshiping him through song. Go ahead and stand with me if you would. I'm gonna pray. Father, we're, we're thankful for your grace, for the kindness of your word to us today, that though it is difficult to hear, because for some of us, we can't possibly imagine loving some of the people who've wronged us. My prayer for those folks is that they would remember more than anything that you care, that you see, and that you are just. But what is so good about this is that to the degree that we can't begin to understand how we can love some of the seemingly unlovable people in our life to that degree and more, you have lavished your love upon us in Jesus. So I pray for the folks in this room. I pray, God, that you would convince them of your love. They would be reminded that it's not because of what they do, because of who Christ is and what he's done, but you invite us onto a life, not of grace, not just of grace and love, but also in being transformed by your love to reflect the holiness of God our Father. We're grateful for Jesus. We pray this in his name, amen.